Due to the nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic violence, murder, and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a cool October afternoon in 1982, 15-year-old Steve Grist took a familiar shortcut through the Clarendon Hill Cemetery in Darien, a Chicago suburb. He smiled to himself as he walked through the tall iron gates. Soon, he could relax at home. As he neared the exit, Steve was startled by a flock of birds fluttering over one of the grave sites. He'd never seen so many in one place before. After taking a few steps forward, he could tell something was off. The festering smell of rot filled his nostrils. With creeping horror, Steve edged even closer to the flock. The birds suddenly dispersed in a hail of feathers, exposing a misshapen shadow that chilled the teen to his very core. Laying in the grass was a bloody body wrapped in tattered clothing. Steve froze, then spun around, terrified that the killers might still be nearby. For a moment, everything was quiet. Then something darted out of a nearby bush. Steve took off towards the gate, screaming for his life. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. Last week, we delved into the sickening crimes of satanic cult leader Robin Gecht and his three loyal followers. The crew ruthlessly maimed, murdered, and cannibalized at least five Chicago-area women in the early 1980s. This week, we'll cover the police's frantic search for the killers and discuss how Robin Gecht pushed his followers to their breaking points. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? 
Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. In October of 1982, 28-year-old Robin Gecht was more furious than he'd ever been. He seethed as he drove through the streets of Chicago with his crew. It had been months since he'd been able to find any construction work. His future with his wife and three children was in jeopardy. To top it off, he could tell his loyal followers were starting to doubt him. After brutally raping and killing five women, they were losing their stomach for murder. But Gact was just getting started. None of his devotees, Edward Spritzer, Andrew Cocorales, nor his brother Thomas, wanted to murder anymore. But not a single one dared to defy their leader. They worried that if they did, they would be dead in a second. So instead, all three of them helped Gecht hunt for his next victim. It didn't take long for the four of them to lure 20-year-old sex worker Beverly Washington into the red work van. In a matter of moments, she was shoved in the back, subdued, and handcuffed. The last thing Beverly remembered was Gecht pointing a gun at her and ordering her to swallow a handful of pills. Once she was sedated, he led his crew in another violent assault. The men raped their unconscious victim. Afterward, Gecht handed one of them a knife and ordered him to cut slowly into Beverly's left breast, removing it completely. When the attack was complete, the crew dumped Beverly in a desolate area off the side of some railroad tracks. Then they returned to Gecht's home, confident they had claimed another life for the Prince of Darkness. But the ritual wasn't over yet. They still needed to hold a black magic ceremony in Gecht's attic, which doubled as a satanic chapel. Gecht slipped in through the front door first to ensure the coast was clear. He peeked into his children's room and saw all three of them sleeping soundly. Then he checked his bedroom to make sure his wife hadn't come home early from her graveyard shift. It was empty. At Gecht's signal, Spritzer and the Cocorales brothers quietly climbed the steps to the attic and knelt at his demonic altar. As they'd done many times before, the young men masturbated while their leader read satanic chants and prayers. Gecht then sliced up Beverly's severed breast for the men to consume as an unholy communion. By the time his wife, Rosemary, returned home the next morning, Gecht and his followers were sound asleep. Rosemary may have heard about Gecht's regular nighttime disappearances from her neighbors, but she'd learned not to pry into her husband's business. Years before, she had suspected Gecht was cheating on her, but he had convinced her otherwise, manipulating her into backing down. Even if Rosemary had confronted Gecht about his mysterious outings, it likely wouldn't have done any good. He was an expert manipulator and always had the upper hand in arguments with his wife. After a decade of marriage, he knew how to convince Rosemary of whatever he wanted. He used the same powers of persuasion to keep Spritzer and the Cocorales brothers in line, even as they grew more reticent about taking part in the murders. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. It seems that Gecht's young followers and his wife had similar reasons for staying by his side. 
According to psychiatrist Dr. Mark Banchik, dysfunctional marriages and cults have a lot in common. In both, the victim is forced to yield their agency and sense of self to someone else. The cult leader or abusive spouse maintains the uneven power dynamic by showering their subject with praise while simultaneously frightening their partner with the threat of abuse. Gecht's followers were terrified of him, but they also felt they were in his debt. After all, he'd taken them under his wing and allowed two of them to live in his home. In Rose's case, Gecht told her anything she wanted to hear, but refused to let her make decisions for herself. He went out whenever he wanted, worked only if he chose to, and had his followers move into the house against her wishes. Over the years, Rose's agency was completely annihilated. Gecht could expertly charm and instill fear in those he sought to dominate. This control is what allowed him to go so long without being detected. But he couldn't hide evidence of his crimes forever. On the morning of October 7, 1982, hours after Gecht and his crew brutally assaulted Beverly Washington, her battered body was found on a heap of trash just outside Chicago. A person scouring for recyclables stumbled upon the bloodied young woman just as the sun rose. Beverly was bleeding so profusely from her chest wounds that the horrified man was sure he'd found a corpse at first. But as he steeled himself and looked closer, he noticed faint signs that the woman was still breathing. Beverly was rushed to the hospital. She was unconscious and cold to the touch after being exposed to the bitter Chicago night. But she had an indomitable will to live. Only hours after being rescued, she made a miraculous turn and was declared to be in stable condition. The next day, authorities visited her in the hospital. They were shocked by the extent of her injuries, but it wasn't the first time they'd seen such a brutal assault. It only took one look to confirm that Beverly was the latest victim of the murders they've been tracking over the past year. Thanks to another victim, Angel York, who had survived an attack back in June, investigators were already familiar with the way the killers operated. They began with an abduction, then escalated to rape, and finally ended with gruesome mutilation. Beverly's physical examination showed every indication that she had suffered a similar fate as Angel York, but her doctors weren't sure she'd be able to speak with authorities anytime soon. She was still incredibly frail. So it came as a shock when Beverly insisted on sharing what she remembered with police right away. The fact that she didn't yet have the strength to talk didn't stop Beverly from telling officers what she knew. By painstakingly blinking and writing slowly on a notepad, the young woman gave a detailed description of her trauma. Unlike Angel York, Beverly remembered every detail about the grisly night. She filled the notepad with descriptions that helped police build their first composite sketch of the culprit. Beverly described him as a white man with a mustache and greasy brown hair in his mid-twenties who wore a flannel shirt and square-toed work boots. However, her most helpful testimony related to the red work van where the assault took place. Beverly wrote that the vehicle had tinted windows and a clip with blue and white feathers hanging from the rearview mirror. She also described a wooden partition which she had been handcuffed to in the back. With these new details, police scoured the city for the van. 
They suspected that the murderers had already claimed at least four victims, three of them in the past few weeks alone. They knew they had to work fast before the crew struck again. But on October 10, 1982, police realized that they still hadn't uncovered the true depths of the killer's depravity. Just as officers hit the streets in search of the elusive red van, they received a call about another victim found dead, this time in a cemetery. As they feared, the body, later identified as Lorraine Borowski, bore lacerations similar to Beverly's. Gecht likely heard the news while watching TV that evening. It made him nervous, like he could practically feel the police looking over his shoulder. The stress was more than enough to push him over the edge by itself. But on top of it all, he still hadn't managed to find steady work. He was going broke. As both of his lives began to crumble, Gecht could tell that his followers were getting antsy. He worried the only reason Spritzer and the Cocorales brothers remained faithful to him was because they worried what would happen to them if they disobeyed. For Gecht, the only bright side of the news coverage was the fear that it spread in the city. Lorraine had been abducted from a quiet suburb in broad daylight and wasn't a sex worker like many of the other victims. Suddenly, every woman in Chicago felt vulnerable. With the official body count now at six, including the shooting of Rafael Tirado, authorities patrolled the streets around the clock. On October 20th, their search finally bore fruit. That afternoon, a patrol car spotted a red van that fit Beverly's description driving down the road. The officer pulled the vehicle over and walked cautiously to the window. There in the driver's seat sat a young man with bright red hair. Edward Spritzer stared nervously at the policeman outside. He was in trouble. Coming up, the police zero in on Robin Gecht. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, back to the story. By October 1982, 28-year-old carpenter, suburban father, and satanic cult leader Robin Gecht had claimed at least five lives. For over a year, he and his three followers had viciously raped, mutilated, and murdered women throughout Chicago. For months, police had searched in vain. But after two victims managed to survive the group's brutal attacks, authorities were able to close in on their suspects. On October 20th, 1982, an officer on patrol pulled over a van that fit the description of one used by the murderers. It was a perfect match, down to the distinctive feathers hanging on the rearview mirror. 
The man inside, on the other hand, didn't match the composite sketch of the killer at all. It wasn't Robin Gecht behind the wheel. Instead, it was 21-year-old Edward Spritzer, one of his followers. He sat nervously in the driver's seat and tried not to look guilty as an officer approached. When asked if the vehicle was his, Spritzer replied that it belonged to his boss. Police asked Spritzer to drive back to Gecht's house while they followed behind. Once outside the home, Spritzer beckoned his boss outside so the officers could get a good look at his face. Authorities were stunned when Robin Gecht walked out of the door. He fit the description given by survivor Beverly Washington to a T. The only thing that gave detectives pause was how calm Gecht appeared to be. Unlike Spritzer, he gave no indication of being a guilty man. He was unflappable and gladly offered to cooperate with authorities. His cool demeanor didn't waver, even after he was taken to the station. Investigators were baffled. He was either completely innocent or was so arrogant that he believed he could get away with anything. According to criminologist Dr. Scott Bond, Gecht's attitude is common among serial killers. Bond notes that as they continue to operate and avoid capture, serial killers become increasingly emboldened and empowered. They relish their ability to kill and avoid detection and may come to believe they will never be apprehended. Even after accidentally leaving two of his victims alive, Gecht believed he was untouchable. He intended to manipulate his interrogators just like he had his followers. After all, if the authorities had hard evidence, then they would have already arrested him. It was true that police had nothing tangible to tie Gecht to the crimes, but they did have ample testimony and circumstantial evidence. After bringing Gecht into the station, officers hauled him and Spritzer to the hospital and presented the lineup to Beverly Washington. Without hesitation, Beverly pointed to Gecht and identified him as her attacker. After this, Gecht's demeanor changed. He had never covered his face during his crimes, and he now realized that any surviving victim could identify him. By the time detectives returned to the interrogation room, Gecht had lawyered up. To their frustration, he was extremely careful when answering the remainder of their questions. No matter what they asked, it seemed Gecht was impossible to rattle. After being detained for several days, Gecht was released on bond. He returned home to his wife, Rosemary. Meanwhile, back at police headquarters, authorities were still debating what to do about Gecht's refusal to confess. By now, they knew he was too smart to say anything that could be used against him. But his follower, Edward Spritzer, seemed like a squealer. He'd acted unusually nervous when Chicago PD pulled him over earlier that month. They wondered if Spritzer had some dirt on his boss. When they brought the 21-year-old in for questioning, he was just as nervous as before. Like Gecht, Spritzer's answers were evasive. At first, he avoided talking about his boss at all costs. But when police asked if the young man knew about Gecht's connection to several murdered women, Spritzer squirmed in his chair. Detectives noticed that he quivered at the mere mention of Gecht's name. The whole time they'd assumed that he was terrified by the police. But now they realized Spritzer wasn't scared of them. He was scared of Robin Gecht. With that in mind, interrogators pressed the young man even harder. 
They prodded him for hours until the young man finally cracked. He broke down and confirmed that he'd helped Gecht mutilate and murder multiple women. With Spritzer's testimony, police had enough to bring Gecht back into custody. When they told Gecht that Spritzer had turned on him, Gecht remained impassive. He refused to say anything. But just a few rooms over, Spritzer couldn't stop talking. Violent details poured out of him. He admitted to witnessing and participating in more crimes than authorities were even aware of. At the end of the interrogation, police had a staggering 78-page statement. The confession began with Spritzer's claim that he drove the van while Gecht fired at two men from the window on October 6th, hours before abducting Beverly Washington. Police quickly identified the shooting as one that claimed 28-year-old Rafael Tirado's life and wounded the other man. He also gave details about victims he believed had not yet been found, swearing that Gecht was the mastermind behind all of the attacks. Spritzer said he never enjoyed taking part in the murders. In fact, he supposedly became violently sick at the sight of blood. As time went on, police came to believe him. Spritzer was visibly unsettled when he divulged the gorier details of their crimes. When all was said and done, the confession implicated Gecht in seven murders and one charge of aggravated battery. Investigators returned to Gecht and presented him with pictures of his victims. Without the slightest hint of worry on his face, he denied knowing any of them. In a desperate attempt to rattle him, police then showed Gecht that Spritzer was talking to detectives. Unfortunately, this strategy also failed. As police grew more irritated, they realized Gecht enjoyed antagonizing them. Eventually, their plan to break Gecht backfired. Spritzer must have seen his former boss when police brought him by. The sight of Gecht only served to frighten the young man all over again. Suddenly, Spritzer recanted most of his statement. He claimed that Gecht had never murdered anyone and contradicted all his previous confessions. Instead, he blamed someone else for the crimes, Andrew Cocorales. According to Spritzer's revised statement, Andrew was the real killer. But unlike his previous confession, the young man's new testimony wasn't as convincing. His story changed repeatedly, and the details were inconsistent. Authorities realized they could no longer consider him reliable. Nevertheless, on November 7, 1982, 19-year-old Andrew Cocorales was brought in for questioning. Given Spritzer's flip-flopping statements, police didn't have high expectations. They were sure Gecht was the killer and assumed Andrew was just a fall guy. But to their surprise, Andrew was far from innocent. It didn't take much to get the 19-year-old to talk, and his testimony proved to be even more disturbing than Spritzer's. He confessed to the deaths of as many as 18 women and vividly recounted his role in the killing of Lorraine Borowski. Police were awestruck. Although his description of Borowski's attack and disposal matched autopsy results and the crime scene, they didn't know whether to believe Andrew had committed up to 18 murders. They hadn't found evidence to corroborate many of his statements. The authorities would later learn about the group's satanic rituals, something Spritzer had never mentioned. They were appalled to hear about the chapel in Gex attic, where they consumed the severed breasts of their victims. 
One of the Cocorales brothers told police he had seen at least 15 pieces of flesh in his boss's trophy box. No one in the Chicago Police Department had experienced this level of brutality before. The only point of comparison anyone could think of was Victorian London's Jack the Ripper case. The police began to refer to the killers as the Chicago Ripper Crew, or Chicago Rippers. Now, more than ever, investigators were determined to take Robin Gecht down. With Andrew's testimony, they finally had everything they needed. Coming up, Robin Gecht is brought to justice. Now, back to the story. Thanks to survivor Beverly Washington's detailed description of her attacker, 28-year-old satanic cult leader Robin Gecht was arrested in November of 1982. Two of his accomplices, Edward Spritzer and Andrew Cocorales, were detained as well. Although their statements differed, it was clear to authorities that the three men were responsible for at least five murders in the Chicago area. While the recently dubbed Chicago Rippers remained in custody, detectives worked to strengthen their case. They interviewed friends and family of the suspects, hoping to get more insight into what led them down such a dark and violent path. Most of their efforts were focused on Gecht, who they suspected to be the ringleader. Despite the tremendous amount of evidence and damning testimonies against him, Gecht had maintained his innocence thus far. Authorities wanted to find something they could use to convince him to confess. They found no shortage of disturbing anecdotes. An interview with one of Gecht's past girlfriends revealed his hidden, sadistic fetishes. The woman claimed that Gecht wanted to cut her breasts or have her perform the act herself. He seemed to get sexual gratification from her pain and discomfort. Either because Gecht's wife believed in her husband's innocence or because she feared what he might do, Rosemary never openly accused Gecht of subjecting her to his perverse fantasies. Even more disturbing, a former babysitter informed investigators that Gecht had slashed Rosemary's chest during sex at least once. However, authorities were unable to verify the babysitter's claim, but it was clear to investigators that Gecht was obsessed with the dissection of female breasts. Years later, writer Jennifer Furio exchanged a series of letters with Gecht for her true crime book. In them, she asked him about this obsession. Gecht downplayed the claims and wrote back that all the men in his family married large-breasted women. According to him, it was a genetic obsession. Author Jenna Pincott offers a Freudian take on some men's obsession with breasts in an article for Psychology Today. She writes that men link breasts to their mothers and therefore their childhoods. Since Gecht was kicked out of his home as a teen, it's possible that he channeled the anger he felt towards his mother onto other women. Detectives could tell that they'd only scratched the surface of Robin Gecht's sadistic fantasies, but they were determined to dig deeper into his life. Their search eventually spawned wild rumors, including one that a young Gecht might have been taught how to kill by an infamous former boss. Allegedly, during the 1970s, Gecht had worked as a subcontractor for John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown. The revelation led some to suspect that Gecht might have been one of the killer clown's accomplices. Or perhaps Gacy groomed his young worker to one day kill on his own. 
Gecht has denied being linked to Gacy, but according to some reports, he previously shared his opinion of Gacy with acquaintances. In an oft-repeated quote that may be nothing more than rumor, Gecht said that he believed Gacy's mistake wasn't the murder of 33 young men. It was burying those victims under his home where they could easily be found. With each interview, authorities were left more disturbed. Gecht's ability to control and manipulate others was clear right away, but nowhere was it more apparent than during questioning of Andrew Kokorales' brother, 22-year-old Thomas. Thomas had always been the most reluctant participant in the murders and suffered from possible learning difficulties as well. At first, detectives didn't suspect him of associating with the Ripper crew at all, but he was implicated in the crimes during Andrew and Spritzer's confessions. It didn't take much to get Thomas to break down and confess. He offered gruesome details about the murders, sexual assaults, and mutilations with the precision of someone who'd witnessed them firsthand. Eventually, Thomas admitted that he and Gecht were also responsible for the September disappearance of Carol Pappas, the wife of a prominent Chicago Cubs player. At one point, he even led detectives to a place in the woods where he said they disposed of her body, but nothing was found when the area was searched. Thomas seemed to believe that Gecht had supernatural satanic powers. He swore that his boss could magically convince others to do his bidding, no matter how perverse his instructions might be. Although Spritzer and Andrew didn't attribute Gecht's powers of persuasion to the devil, they too expressed a deep fear towards Gecht and the hold he had over them. In September of 1983, 29-year-old Gecht was the first of the group to be charged, but the court ultimately deemed the murder accusations inadmissible because of their inconsistency. With no physical evidence linking Gecht to any murder, he was sentenced to 120 years for attempted murder and rape, based mostly on his attack of Beverly Washington. His accomplices each had separate trials. In April 1984, 23-year-old Edward Spritzer pled guilty to taking parts in the murders of Rose Davis, Sandra Delaware, Shway Mock, and Rafael Tirado. He received life sentences for each of them. In a separate trial for Linda Sutton's murder, he was sentenced to death. Around the same time, Andrew Cocorales faced a jury in two different counties. In the first trial, he received a life sentence for the murder of Rose Davis. During the second trial, Andrew was convicted of the kidnapping and murder of Lorraine Borowski and given the death penalty. In a 1989 appeal, a desperate Andrew recanted his confessions and denied he had ever raped or killed anyone. He claimed the interrogators had fed him information, tortured him, and promised him leniency if he talked. The jury ultimately found these statements far-fetched. His sentence was upheld. Andrew's brother Thomas also attempted to get his confession blocked, to no avail. He received a life in prison sentence for his role in Lorraine Borowski's murder. However, in 1987, he won an appeal and became eligible for a new trial, which resulted in a 70-year sentence with the possibility of an earlier release. It likely helped Thomas's case that in August 1987, the body of Carol Pappas, the wife of a Chicago Cubs player, was found. Even though Thomas had previously admitted to killing Carol, the details didn't match up. Carol's body was found submerged in a lake, 
and didn't bear any signs of the Ripper crew's signature slayings. Her death was ruled a road accident, suggesting that Thomas might have confessed to more murders than he was actually guilty of. His family had always suspected this. They believed that Thomas didn't have the mental capacity to commit the crimes he confessed to. He simply wanted to follow Andrew's lead, even if it meant going to jail with him. While Spritzer and Andrew Cocorales waited in death row, Gecht continued to maintain his innocence. In his letter exchange with crime writer Jennifer Furio, Gecht balked at being called a serial killer. He even threatened to stop writing if she asked him about the murders. He assured Furio that if his case were reopened, DNA evidence would prove his innocence. In stark contrast, Furio's correspondence with Edward Spritzer offered a glimpse into a deeply remorseful man dedicated to bettering himself while in jail. He had no qualms when asked about the murders. He explained how desperate he was living on the streets before Gecht took him in. He would have done anything to secure a roof over his head, and Gecht exploited that vulnerability. By the late 90s, the Chicago Rippers were a distant memory for most. But in March of 1999, the murders received renewed attention. A religious coalition headed by the Greek Orthodox Church Andrew Kokorales grew up in asked the Illinois governor to commute the 35-year-old sentence. The church was morally opposed to the death penalty. Despite the group's protests, Andrew was executed by lethal injection that same month on March 17, 1999. However, in January of 2003, Edward Spritzer's death sentence was commuted to life in prison. Sixteen years passed before the Ripper crew made headlines again. In March 2019, 58-year-old Thomas Cocorales was released on parole after serving half of his sentence. In a televised interview shortly after his release, Thomas apologized to Lorraine Borowski's family and assured them that despite what everyone thought of him, he is no monster. As of June 2019, Thomas lived in a religious ministry dedicated to rehabilitating ex-cons. Robin Gecht, on the other hand, is unlikely to leave his high-security prison anytime soon. The now 66-year-old won't be eligible for parole until 2042. With good reason. Warren Wilcos, a former detective who worked on the Chicago Rippers case, said he wasn't worried about Thomas Cocorales walking free. However, he noted that it would be a whole different matter if the courts ever decided to release Robin Gecht. He has said, Gecht made Charles Manson look like a Boy Scout. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next week with another episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. We'll see you next time. 
Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Edlin Ortiz, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 